Now, Bobby, your major league career uh, spanned the years 1955 to 1966. What was so incredible about playing for the Yankees during those years? Well, one thing, they won nine out of the first 10 years I played. So we were in the World Series every year. But I might add, Chicago won in 90 in 59. So one of those losses was to the White Sox. To the White Sox. Yeah, so a Chicago team, yeah. (laughs) It was a great time. Uh, The Yankees were winning, so we were in competition. No playoffs at that time. The winner of the American League would play the winner of the National League. And so we were in the World Series every year. And I hold a record that still stands after 53 years of playing in 30 consecutive World Series games. Now, all that means is I didn't miss a game. Kubek missed one, Yogi missed a game or two, and, and Mantle did too. Wow, wow. Now, speaking of your honors, uh, you won five gold gloves. Right. You participated in seven World Series, selected to seven all-star teams. Of all the honors that you won in baseball, which, which one is most significant to you today? Well, I think 1962, a special year. We were world champions both in 61 and 62. And I led the American League in hits with 209 in 62. But I was, I was named runner-up to Mickey Mantle for most valuable player in the American League. And when Mickey got the award, he had missed 30 games that year. And on the last day of the season, he did his 30th home run. But he made the statement, Bobby should have won this award. That's my biggest honor, being named runner-up to Mickey Mantle. <laughs> being, being a runner-up to Mickey Mantle right. at anything. Right. Wow. wow. Now, in, in your memoirs, I read that although people always ask you for your five best moments and World Series or All-Star Games or whatever, you have a, an easier time remembering your five worst moments. So tell us, tell us about a worst moment. Well, two that I think of right away. Number one. Uh, the 1964 World Series, the Yankees were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. It went to the seventh game. Yogi Berra was our manager, and we lost it as Bob Gibson won his third win that year. And the thing I remember most is on the airplane, on the jet, flying back from St. Louis to New York, my wife and I were on the plane, and Yogi sat down by us. And he said, tomorrow I'm meeting with the Yankees, and I'm going to ask for a two-year contract. The managers at that time just had one-year contract. What do you think? My wife spoke up and said, if Bobby hadn't made that error in the fourth game of the World Series to load the bases so that Ken Boyer could hit a grand slam home run and we lost the game four to three, said if it hadn't been for that, we'd have won the series. Yogi didn't laugh and I certainly didn't laugh, but uh, (laughs) the sad part was that the next day driving home, he was fired as manager of the New York Yankees, even though we had won the pennant. And, and gone down to the seventh game. Wow. I think the Yankees made a mistake at that time. But, wow. Uh, but you're still married to the woman who said that. I am still married to her. 57 wow. years. My. Right. So that's a long time. <laughs> the other one's a little more complicated. It was an all-star game. My son had fallen down the stairs and broken his tooth. And I said, I'm going to give you a trip to Cleveland for the all-star game. My wife took my son and we stayed with some friends in Toledo, Ohio, went over to Cleveland. We didn't know there was a little time change. We were an hour late for the game. Nellie Fox was the starting second baseman. I got in in the fifth inning just in time to hit into a double play and to make two errors. And then the sad part was I was to meet my wife after the game and she was waiting in the National League side. So we missed connection there, missed our plane back to New York, finally got back to New York, got to the airport. My car battery was dead. I remember that game. You gotta love those honors. <laughs> that's right. That's 
right. Wow. Well, let's go back to your childhood, Bobby. What, uh, how did you know you had a love for this game? You were going to pursue it. What, what inculcated that love in your life? My dad loved baseball, didn't have a chance to play, had to work. Tombstone business, marble and granite. Made me a bat out of a piece of wood, picked up those marble and granite chips and just envisioned a ball game, playing in the big leagues. Worked out so that I could play on the little league level. It was called Knee Pants League, sponsored by the YMCA. Civic Club sponsored the teams. And then a mentor came into my life. My dad didn't have good health, but a mentor. He was seven years older, but he was a baseball player that had played Legion and semi-pro ball. Took me under his wing, hit me ground balls, and just... Uh, uh, that uh, I think he developed that love in me that my dad uh, also had. Wow, wow. Now, you say he hit you ground balls. Uh, another story I got a kick out of is how you ended up as an infielder, not an outfielder. It had something to do with ground balls and throwing a ball against a, a brick chimney. Tell us that one. My home was a wooden home, but it had a brick chimney, and uh, that was where I'd throw the ball. And also had concrete steps, and you'd throw the ball against the steps, and it'd come back as ground balls. And I... I threw it up on the roof to develop my skills as an outfielder, but the gutter would catch it. I'd have to go out the bathroom window and get up on the roof. <laughs> so I thought the infield was a much better place to play. <laughs> well, you described a, a moment ago uh, the transitions you went through from knee pants league up, up through uh, semi-pro stuff and eventually making the Yankees. So you finally signed with the Yankees and you finished spring training down south. You're on your way back through Georgia. Uh, you're pretty full of yourself because you're a Yankee now, but you played an exhibition game where a third baseman named Puddinhead Jones kind of <laughs> took the wind out of your sails. What happened? Well, it, it really, I was 19 years old when I joined the Yankees. I was excited, and we were playing in Savannah, Georgia, and my father and oh, just all numerous people from my hometown made that trip to Savannah, just about a two-hour trip, and I was excited. I didn't start the game. Casey Stingle was our manager. Finally put me in the eighth inning, and of all things, I hit a triple. And I was so excited, I got around to third base and uh, went in standing up, didn't have to slide. Kind of looked up in the stands to make sure my dad saw, saw the triple, you know, I was looking around. Third baseman said, hey, you're from South Carolina. And I said, yeah, I'm from Sumter. He said, I'm from Bennettsville. He said, move your foot and let me get the dirt off that bag. And I moved my foot, you're right, he tagged me out. <laughs> hidden, <laughs> hidden ball trick. <laughs> but the umpire was from South Carolina, and he said, I can't believe you do that to a South Carolinian. He's safe. I will not call him out. So. <laughs> but I learned a lesson. Never happened again. In fact, just a quick word, I coached South Carolina. Clemson was our big rival. Whitey Ford's son was my switch hitting shortstop. I saw this develop up at Clemson one day. The Clemson guy hit a double. And uh, Whitey Ford's son got the ball. Instead of throwing it to the pitcher, he kind of walked back in, picked up the rosin bag, gave the pitcher the rosin bag, and walked back out towards second base, just ambling along. And the runner was off the bag. And I could see that play develop. And I hollered out, the shortstop's got the ball. The shortstop's got the ball. And everybody looked around. And Whitey's son threw his hand up, threw the ball back to the pitcher. I just didn't like that play. <laughs> Been there, done that. Well, when you, you got up to New York, uh, you met Mickey Mantle, famous Mickey Mantle. How did he treat you as a brand new rookie? Did he ignore you, walk away from you, greet you? Two things happened. Number one, I was asked just to go out and feel some ground balls. First time I'd put on a uniform. I was really just working out, a four-day workout before I played in the minor leagues. 
And I walked out and fielded those ground balls, and they said, now go up to the batting cage and take some swings. I stood around the batting cage, but I wasn't about to step in front of Yogi Berra, Hank Bauer, and Mickey Mantle put his arm around me and said, come on, kid, step in here and take some swings. And then when I came up at 19, I was in the dugout, rookie day in New York, and Mickey came over to me, and he said, come on over here and sit on the edge of the dugout and look up like I'm showing you the stands. And he said, your paper, your picture will be in all the papers in New York tomorrow morning. Sure enough, we got over there, photographers came over, took pictures, and the next day it was in headlines in all the newspapers. Wow. Mickey Mantle showing Bobby Richardson Yankee Stadium. Wow. But a great friend, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But, uh, well, let's, let's move that direction, okay. because... Uh, I read the latest uh, Mickey Mantle biography a year or so ago when it came out, The Last Boy. And I got to admit, as a, as a kid, he was another baseball hero of mine. And then I read the, the book and found out that my idol had feet of clay. I mean, he was a, a womanizer, an alcoholic. It just it did not paint a great picture of Mickey Mantle. So t tell us what Mickey was like. Well, first of all, I would just say that I'd, I was not interviewed in that book, and my wife tried to talk her out of glorifying that side of me because he had a wonderful, wonderful desire to help people. He'd fly across the country, do a benefit for Fritz Burkell, a teammate who had cancer. Came down to my home on four occasions. He and I had a little place together in Boone, North Carolina at Grandfather Mountain. And I remember one time we were both grand marshal of a ski festival, and he didn't know how to ski, and I didn't know how to ski, and they filmed it on a lift like we knew what we were doing. <laughs> but I remember also that day that uh, he had to catch a helicopter and then fly to Charlotte to go somewhere else. The weather was bad, not looking like it is today. And he talked to my wife, and he said, Betsy, let's go inside and read the scriptures together, and, and let's have prayer together before I get on that helicopter. And then he came down to Columbia, South Carolina when I coached at the university and did a batting exhibition. And they made a film of it, just a wonderful time. And once again, we talked about the Lord and to my hometown. Gave away 2,000 Mickey Mantle bats. He signed about 100. He had a wonderful side that uh, didn't come out in that book. And so wow. I'm, I just consider him not only the fellow that could outrun anybody in baseball, switch hitter could hit the ball out of the park with power. He was the icon of the era that I played in as far as baseball is concerned. Okay, I'm burning that book. No. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, not, Go for it. T tell us about some of the other uh, Yankee greats that you had an opportunity to play with. Well, Yogi Berra was not only my teammate all the time that I played, but he was my manager in 1964. Roger Maris hit 61 home runs in 1961. There was a big battle at that time, of course, for the home run championship. And Mickey and Roger were neck and neck, and everybody on our team wanted Mickey to break the record because Babe Ruth had been a Yankee, Mickey was a Yankee, and Roger had been traded in. But Mickey had an infection in his leg and couldn't play the last three weeks of the season, and so we switched over, and our allegiance was to Roger, and he did break the record on the last day of the season. Unusual circumstances yes. that... Uh, because the press was different, everybody would ask the same question to Roger and to Mickey. Now you go break Babe Ruth's home run record. And Roger, just because of nervousness and other things, started losing his hair. And he just uh, couldn't Imagine handle it. Imagine a guy losing his hair. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry, I didn't see that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but on the last day of the season, he hit his 61st home run. The ball went out of the park, and we had to push him out of the dugout. You know what? I can't believe that. I didn't turn my phone off. Oh, man. Oh, man. 
I am so sorry. And it won't go off, but I'll get it off. Where were we, Jim? <laughs> sorry about that. I don't know, Bobby. <laughs> I thought it was somebody right down here on the first row. Okay, so uh, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Roger Maris. Come on, who else that um, we would know? In the infield, Moose Garren from Chicago at first base. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Hit the ball out of the park. And then uh, second base I played. Tony Kubek was the shortstop during the time I played. I actually started with Phil Rizzuto first couple of years. Tony took over. Third base was Cleet Boyer. His brother Ken Boyer played third base for the St. Louis Cardinals. And then uh, Yogi Berra and Elston Howard, the catches. And Whitey Ford was a pitcher on that ball club. And just a wonderful team. I just played it a great time. Enjoyed it tremendously. As he was Marison right, Mantle in center. Tommy, Tommy Trish, Trish in, left in, field, in left field. But also whoever was hitting good. Yogi Berra played left field. Elson Howard played left field. Tom, uh, Johnny Blanchett played left field. No DH in that time. Yes. And so yeah. we were getting those good bats in the lineup. All right. All right. Joe Girardi, the current manager of the Yankees, former catcher of the Chicago Cubs. He wrote the foreword to your autobiography. And again, you know, impact player. I'd encourage you to pick it up at uh, one of our, our campus bookstores today. Uh, he says this in the, in the forward to your book. Every club has to have that guy that players feel they can turn to when things are not going well. Someone they can talk to, someone who can provide comfort during difficult times. Bobby Richardson was one of those guys. The kind who got along with everybody, who helped bring everyone in the clubhouse together, and who genuinely cared about the people around him. A true leader. Were, were you aware that you were playing the role that uh, Girardi describes here? No. Joe Girardi was asked by Tyndale Publishing Company to write the foreword. Only thing he knew at the time was the title of the book. He had not read the book at all. And that's an honor that he would write that, and it's the best part of the book, and I'll say that. <laughs> I was player representative of the Yankees during the time that I played, and I can remember on 1960, for instance, one of my duties was to organize a team picture for the 60 World Series. And I called a little meeting and said, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, we'll all meet. 25th anniversary of the Yankees playing in World Series play. The picture will be taken at that time. My brother-in-law called, and he was flying into John F. Kennedy Airport way out. And I picked him up the next morning real early. Came back by the stadium. I said, man, it's so early. I'll go back to my home. Ridgewood, New Jersey. Make a long story short, I missed the picture. I forgot about it, didn't come in. Happened to hit a Grand Slam home run and in the big yearbook, the big front page, you look and my picture's missing. A little place where I was supposed to be sitting was there. Casey didn't like that too much. Wow. wow. I didn't either. Wow. Back to Joe's favorable comments uh, about you. I, I know that, that you attribute the impact you had on others to your relationship with God. So tell us how you became a follower of Jesus Christ. My, I had two wonderful Sunday school teachers when I was a young boy growing up, and they presented God's plan of salvation in a marvelous way. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I needed a Savior. And they instilled in me that desire to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. So we set up a meeting with my pastor on a Sunday afternoon, beautiful day, and I sat down with him, and he opened his Bible. And he started sharing verses like when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He turned to Romans. The Bible points out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I knew that in my life I displeased God in many ways. And he pointed out the penalty involved. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. But then he shared the good news that Christ died for my sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
And that day as a young 12-year-old, I understood that I was a sinner. I asked the Lord Jesus to forgive me for my sins, and I received him as my personal Savior. John 1.12 uh, wrapped it up. It says, but as many as received him, meaning Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the children of God, the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. And so that day as a young 12-year-old, I accepted Christ as my yeah. Savior. Bobby, if I could just play the, the role of a cynic for a moment here. Uh, someone could look at you and say, so you were 12 years old in the South, the Bible Belt. Trusting Christ was like a rite of passage, right? I mean, it, it had no more significance than any other ritual someone goes through. Why do you feel it made a, a, an ongoing difference in, in your life and it wasn't... It wasn't just a check off the box sort of thing. Two things come to mind. Number one, a young girl moved to my hometown, to my home church. And she sat on one side, sat on this side. We crossed one day, met, and fell in love with her and eventually married her. But she knew Christ not only as her Savior, but he was Lord of her life. And our time together was my growth in the Lord. She explained to me how important it was to spend time in God's Word. And I started reading the Bible on a daily basis. And not only that, but having prayer together, the two of us having prayer. In fact, I remember my last game as a New York Yankee. And in that last game, the young second baseman accepted Christ. And I saw him 15 years after he accepted Christ. And I asked him how he was doing. And he said, Coach, I'm not doing very well. He said, do you remember when I made that decision and said yes to Christ? He said, I didn't follow through. I didn't get involved in a church where God's word is taught and expounded. I didn't spend time in his precious word. I didn't talk to him in prayer. And with his head down, he said, I guess I've really not been very much of a witness. And that's my answer. I did those things as I moved on up from 12 on up through getting married and having children. A wonderful church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, where God's word was explained in such a wonderful way. Daily devotions in our home, prayer together as a family and understanding the importance of sharing your faith with others. So that day at 12 years old when you received Christ, it was, it was the first step, first step. Of, of an ongoing, ongoing walk. Yes. All right. Well, let's go back to baseball for a few moments here. Uh, your first big season at the plate was 1959. The, the Yankees weren't doing too well that year. I think they were in last place. But you came to the last game of the season. You needed two hits to hit 300. There was nobody else on the team who had hit 300, and uh, you're playing the Orioles, and they decide to cooperate and help you get those, <laughs> those two hits. That, that is a great story. You've got to tell it to us. Well, it happened just that way. Last game of the season, Casey Stingle recognized I needed two hits, and so he said, hey, if you can get two hits tomorrow, we'll take you out of the lineup, and the Yankees will have at least one 300 hitter. Word sort of got around. I needed a base hit, and Billy O'Dell was pitching. He and I quail hunt together in South Carolina, and he sent word over, I'll be throwing it right in there for you tomorrow. <laughs> and Brooks Robinson was playing third base, and he sent word, oh, I'll be playing real deep if you want to bunt. <laughs> and the catcher was Joe Ginsburg. He said, I'll tell you what's coming. <laughs> and the first base umpire was Ed Hurley. He said, just make it close. <laughs> I had a line drive to right field, and my best friend, a wonderful Christian, Albie Pearson, didn't get in on it. He made a diving catch in right field. But I got two hits the next two times up and ended up 301. All right. Next year, things turned around for the Yankees. 1960, they went to the World Series against the Pittsburgh Pirates. You ended up being 
the, the most valuable player, the MVP of that World Series, there's something very unusual about that. What was the unusual thing about you ending up with the MVP? I think the unusual thing is that we lost the series. And exactly. Never before had an MVP come from a losing team. Right. And uh, it's an un interesting story, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure of the significance. At that time, Sport Magazine presented a Corvette, 60 Corvette, to the winner of the Most Valuable Player in the World Series. Ed Fitzgerald, the editor of Sport Magazine, made that choice, just a one-man choice. And when I was 13 years old, there was a book written. I didn't know this at the time. My son told me later and showed me the book. But in that book, he talked about a Yankee rookie shortstop. And the name of the second baseman in that novel that he wrote was Bobby Richardson. And I don't know whether that had anything to do with the decision or not, but uh, I did uh, and still hold the record of most RBIs in the World Series, which is 12. Six in a single game, Pujols has tied that record. And, uh, and so Elroy Face that played for the Pirates said I was driving his Corvette. He didn't like that too much. <laughs> what, whatever happened to the Corvette? Well, I took it home and I had two boys and a, one daughter and I couldn't get them in that Corvette. It's a two-seater and so I traded it for a Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> My son now says, Dad, I can't believe you did that and I can't either. <laughs> okay, let's go, let's go back to talking about your family. You mentioned your kids. It was actually for family reasons. Uh, that you decided to step away from baseball at what would be considered your prime. So uh, go back to that girl that you saw across the church auditorium and you, you started dating. It actually started off on the, on the wrong foot, didn't it? Because uh, she, she made you look pretty bad on your very she, first date. She was a pretty good athlete and we, our first date we played miniature golf and we hadn't been playing too long when I realized she was seven strokes ahead of me and uh, <laughs> she realized it too. And, she thought, man, if I'm going to impress him, I better let him get a few strokes in here. And she'd have a putt about like this that'd go across and then come back. And she ended up winning by one stroke. She was indeed a good athlete. It's, it, I got married during the baseball season. Flew home to South Carolina. We were married. Drove out to Denver. And at Denver, I had arranged to rent an apartment in a not too nice area near Mile High Stadium. And I said, Betsy, here's where we'll be living. And I hate to say this, but I'm leaving on a 17-day road trip. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And that was difficult for a young girl like that, uh, starting out in baseball. But Whitey Herzog's wife was there, and Daryl Johnson's wife that managed the Red Sox, and uh, Tommy Lasorda's wife. And they kind of took her under the wing and uh, made it good enough that uh, when I got back, things were well. Wow. And uh, 57 years later, we're still together. Three boys, two girls. Our two boys are pastors. Our son, Rich, is in Buckhead in Atlanta and Andy Stanley's church, really loves the Lord, the whole family. One daughter's a nurse, the other's a missionary in Kenya. She's at Rift Valley Academy, and she and her family over there. And so we've had a wonderful life, and it all stemmed out to the fact that Kubek and I roomed together my whole career in the minors and majors, and we thought, we've played here 10 years, the Yankees have won nine. Our priority with our family is moving aside. We want to spend more time with our family. And so the two of us decided that at 30 years of age, we're going to retire from the Yankees. Sports Illustrated had it all set up. They were going to do a story, and Tony and I would be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And then Ralph Hauck, our manager, said, wait a minute, I don't want both of you to retire. Bobby Mercer's coming on board. I need one of you to stay and break Bobby Mercer in. It was all set up that Tony would stay and that I would retire. Tony got called into reserve program, and playing touch football, he got a pinched nerve. Mayo Clinic said he had to retire. And so they called me and said, Tony can't play. We've got a gentleman's agreement. Both of you won't quit. Will you play one more year? I did. 
And because I did, they gave me a day at Yankee Stadium. Only 10 had been honored that time with a day at Yankee Stadium, including Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and DiMaggio. Uh, it was a wonderful day. Now, one of the things that I read in your book that was uh, unusual about that day is you had a singer <laughs> who sang a song that you would not think would be sung at a, uh, a retirement day for a baseball player. Well, who was the singer and what was the song? Well, the singer just died just uh, not a very short time ago. He was well over 100 years of age. His name was George Beverly Shea. And George Beverly Shea sang How Great They Are at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the half of it. <laughs> Cliff Barrows led the national anthem. He's the one that led the choir for Billy Graham all those years. And the three Billy Graham evangelists, Grady Wilson, George Wilson, and uh, T.W. Wilson were all in attendance. You, you, did and, some, you did some work with Billy Graham, didn't I you? did on five occasions. I was Billy in Crusades, Madison Square Garden, Houston in the Astrodome with the president of Sense in Hawaii when it was on national television, and twice in Japan. I would just give my testimony, just a brief testimony. And boy, the Lord used that organization and still continues to use it. Last night in my hotel room at the Baker's Hotel, I flipped on Billy Graham. He was younger, but boy, was he preaching. He could bring it. He could bring it. Yes, yeah. As we draw our interview toward a close, I want to go back to talking about Mickey Mantle. You described that uh, 61 battle, home run battle between Mantle and Maris, uh, both trying to break uh, Babe Ruth's record, 60 home runs in a season. What, what did you observe about Mickey, particularly, in the stress of, of that whole battle? Well, I... Uh, I think that I appreciated more than anything the fact that he was a team man, that he wanted to see Roger break the record. The record didn't mean that much to him. He was a team player. But even more than that, there was a longing in Mickey's heart to make that decision concerning receiving Jesus Christ. I remember on one occasion, Phil Rizzuto hollered over across the room to Mickey and said, Mickey, have you made that decision yet? And it all started from our conversations and the time that we spent together. And then Roger Maris, at 51 years of age, went on to be with the Lord in a battle with cancer. His funeral was in Fargo, North Dakota, and I represented the Yankees and had the eulogy at that funeral. Mickey was a pallbearer. When the service was over that day in Fargo, got on a motor home, it was really cold that day, and Mickey sat down by me, and he'd been drinking a little bit, and he said, hey, I want you to have my funeral. Don't remember answering him, because I didn't know how to answer a question like that at that time, but... Uh, some time passed by, and every time I saw him, he'd say, don't forget now, you're to have my funeral. He was not going to church at that time. And then there was a national interview on television with Bob Costas. And Bob Costas uh, uh, was interviewing Mickey, and Mickey said, I've been through Betty Ford. I don't drink anymore. He said, but I haven't been a good father. Boy, did it take courage for him to say that on national television, looking like he did. He said, I haven't been a good husband. He said... Uh, I just, uh, I still have a void in my heart. He said, I'm just not sure what it is. Well, I knew, and when I was with him again, uh, we talked again about the Lord and his need to say yes to Christ. And then it sort of culminated when he went into Baylor Medical Center, and my wife and I were in Dallas at the All-Star Game, and my phone rang early in the morning, and Betsy, my wife, answered the phone. It was Mickey, and he said, I'm really hurting. I want Bobby to pray for me. Well, we did have prayer on the phone that morning, and I shared this verse with Mickey in Philippians, the fourth chapter, um, the, the verse, the Philip's translation says, delight yourself in the Lord. Find your joy in him at all times. Never forget his nearness. 
Then it says, tell God in detail your problems, your anxieties. And the promise is the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep our hearts and minds as we rest in Christ Jesus. Betsy went out and spent the next two days with Merlin, his wife. Mickey and I talked several times. And as I started to leave to go back to the Carolinas, Mickey said, don't forget now, you're to have my funeral. Well, three weeks passed by and the call came. He had taken a turn for the worse. Ca- cancer had come into that liver, liver transplant. And immediately Betsy went on a plane flying toward Dallas, Texas. And one more time, I wanted to be bold in my witness for Mickey because I wanted him to spend eternity with me in heaven. Dropped Betsy off at the home we were staying in, went to Baylor Medical Center. And as I walked in, he had a smile on his face and he said, I can't wait to tell you this. I want you to know I'm a Christian. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I remember crying a little bit and then I said, Mickey, let me go over it with you just to make sure you understand. (laughs) And I went over God's plan of salvation that he loves us. Sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to shed his precious blood and promised in his word that if I would repent of my sin and receive him as Savior, that he would indeed be the promised everlasting life. And he said, that's just what I've done. Well, I couldn't wait to get back to that home and share that with Betsy. And when I did, she said, well, maybe you didn't explain it right. And she she said, let me go. And we walked in and Mickey and Betsy were buddies. And Mickey with IVs in both arms made his way over to the reclining suite. She knelt down by him and shared her testimony of how she'd come to know Christ. And then she asked the question, Mickey, if a holy God were here today, and he would ask you the question, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say? He paused a little bit and started quoting John 3:16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He had a real peace. He told the doctors he was ready. And then some three days later, he went on to be with the Lord. Mickey had a day in New York, retired his number, monument in Centerfield. And uh, yet on national television, I was able to share that good news that he had made that decision and received Christ as his personal savior. Now, now Bobby, you went on to do his funeral and uh, you know, packed church, a couple thousand people in the church. Uh, who knows how many watching on TV. What, what did you say at the funeral of Mickey Mayle? Well, Mickey had heard me use this, these words before and uh, he said, I want to use them on my day in New York. Didn't have a chance, too much going on that day. And I concluded the service, these words that I think sums up everything. It was written by a friend of mine by the name of Walt Huntley. It says, your name may not appear down here in this world's hall of fame. In fact, you may be so unknown that no one knows your name. The trophies, the honors, the flashbulbs here may pass you by and neon lights are blue. But if you know and love the Lord, then I have news for you. This hall of fame is only good as long as time shall be. But keep in mind God's hall of fame is for eternity. This crowd on earth, they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall, and that's how long you last. But in God's hall of fame, by just believing in his son, inscribed, you'll find your name. I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name, however small, that's written there beyond the stars in that celestial hall. For every famous name on earth, our glory that they share, I'd rather be an unknown here, have my name up there. I guess that really does say it all. Yes. 
I just want to reread a verse that we mentioned earlier in our service during worship, and you heard Bobby quote it. I want to read it to you one more time because it's really pertinent as we draw things to a close. You've heard his story, but you know God's writing a story for you as well. And these are really important words from John's Gospel, one of the biographies of Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Two important verbs in that verse. If you want to become a child of God, if you want to be, uh, you know, you, you may never be in the Hall of Fame here, but if you want to be in God's Hall of Fame, if you want a relationship with God that begins today and continues on into eternity, that relationship comes through Christ. The two verbs in the verse you've got to pay attention to are believe and receive. You know, there are, there are certain things that need to be believed, that need to be acknowledged. You, you have to acknowledge your own sinfulness. And, and whether, whether you acknowledge that at 12 years old, as a young boy, who you think, well, you couldn't have done a whole lot of bad then. Well, you know, by 12 years old, you're pretty aware of the fact that you've disappointed God in many ways, gone your own way. God's a perfect, holy God. It's our sin that comes between us and this holy God. So you, you may acknowledge that at 12 years old, or it may take you like it took Mickey Mantle a whole life of uh, living for yourself before you wake up to the realization, uh, my life's far from God. I need God. So you believe that you're a sinner who's far from God. You believe that Christ is the one who died on the cross for your sin. That, that when you sinned against God, you unplugged from the giver of life. And when you unplug from the giver of life, what you get is death. And so Christ took death in your place on the cross so that he could offer you as a gift forgiveness and new life, eternal life. And that's the other thing you need to believe, that this life comes only through Christ. And so you look to him and you ask for his forgiveness. You, you believe all these things, but the second verb in the verse that's really important, you receive. You know, a lot of people go through life believing the right stuff because they went to church and they know all these factoids I just recited, but they've never made a personal decision for themselves. And again, whether you make it at 12 years old or you make it at 22 years old or at 42 years old or 62 years old, it's a decision that you have to make consciously, deliberately. Uh, nobody gets into God's family by osmosis or by accident. You, you get in by making a choice and putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And so it, it would be a fitting conclusion to our service to uh, ask you to bow together with me and let me walk you through a prayer, the kind of prayer that Bobby prayed at age 12, that Mickey Mantle prayed you know, shortly before the end of his life to surrender himself to Christ. I want to pray that kind of a prayer with you right now so that if you've never prayed a prayer like this before, you can make that same decision, the decision that Mickey knew was hanging over his head for years and finally got around to making. You could make that decision today. So I'm going to ask you at all four of our campuses right now, would you bow your heads together with me? And let me walk you through a real simple prayer. If you've never prayed anything like this before, the words aren't as important as what's going on in your heart. So if this reflects what's going on in your heart, you, you tell God, yeah, this is, this is for me. God, I recognize that I am a sinner. And that my sin keeps me apart from you, a holy God. And of all the sinful things that I could do, the worst is that I've chosen to be the king, the queen of my own life instead of putting you on the throne. 
I've gone my own way. I've lived for myself. And now I want to turn from that. I want to ask you to forgive my sins. And Jesus Christ, I acknowledge that you're the one who died on the cross for me. That your death was the death my sins deserve. I want to put my hope and my trust in you. I want to receive your gift of forgiveness. I want you to become my Savior. Right now in my heart, I want to get up from the throne of my heart where I've been sitting, and I want you to take that seat. I want you to be the king, the leader, the Lord of my life. Now as our heads are bowed, I just want to ask you to do one, one special thing. When you make a decision like this in your heart, a spiritual decision, sometimes it helps to do something very tangible to say, yeah, I really did that. I really meant it. And so I'm going to ask you, if you prayed that prayer in your heart and you just want to follow it up with a physical sort of action that seals the deal, as it were, just put your hand up in the air for a second and then put it back down. And all that says is, yep, I just prayed that prayer from my heart. Just do that. Put your hand up and then back down. All right. All around the auditorium. Any, anyone else at our campuses as well? Just stick your hand in the air for a moment. Put it back down. Lord God, I want to thank you for uh, drawing us to know you. Your word says that nobody comes to know you except you take the initiative in drawing them to yourself. We're just not smart enough. We're not moral enough. We're, We're not good enough people to choose to pursue you on our own. So if we put a hand in the air, it could only be because... You put that desire in our hearts, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.